Welcome to episode one of the Making Better Noise podcast. That incredible song you're hearing is called Stealing Home, and our guest today is Omar Musisco of the duo that gave it to the world, The Spiritual Motels. I couldn't think of a better person to kick off this podcast series. Omar is a truly gifted and thoughtful songwriter, singer, and instrumentalist. In addition to being a husband, a father, a school psychologist, and a humble, generous soul. He joined us in spite of some technical difficulties that led to his recording his interview in less than ideal audio conditions. Thank you, Omar, for joining the podcast. First of all, the first question I have for you is how to properly pronounce your last name, because I've always thought it was Musisco. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's uh, about as good as anyone ever says it, or even myself. I got it. There's been debate, internal debate within my family. There's people who pronounce it differently. And when I moved to California, I said... Uh, we will be known as the West Coast Musiscos. <laughs> and a lot of people in my family would say Ma Cisco, even though the second letter is a U. And I told my dad about it, and he said, uh, Yeah, yeah, I think that's all right. And I'm like, Well, you went your whole life a certain way, and then you just immediately, easily agreed to me changing it. I'm like, cool, all right. <laughs> he was re- ready for a change. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, so to give you some background, the reason that I'm doing this podcast is because in, you know, I've been a musician a long time and I've been fortunate enough to come across some amazing musicians, songwriters, instrumentalists, mixers, producers, and they're not necessarily widely known. And I think there's this, this kind of preconceived notion that if somebody is like really great, then you would know about them. And I've found that, you know, I come across people all over the place that, that that's not the case. You know, people that I work with, um, people that I've met at, you know, songwriters meetups. It's almost like, I think of it almost like, you know, elderly people or people who were in, in World War II who you would look at and never know kind of uh, what their story is or how many stories they have to tell. But, you know, you meet these people and find out they're they're just incredibly talented. So for me, I was like, well, you know, you can hear music from these people, but I would like to create kind of a record of their musical journey and see how much it's like what I've gone through or how different, because musicians, we are a, an interesting breed. Yeah. So that's kind of where, where this started from. So let's get into your musical, your musical life. Um, tell me about where it all started. Like, how did you get into music? Where'd you start? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Um... Well, first, I just want to comment on that, the purpose of this podcast. I think that's a beautiful thing and a, a beautiful reason, you know, because I, I've had probably some pretty similar experiences as you, where you meet someone is like that five people know about. And you're like, how is that possible? This, this master, this magnificent being is, is barely even in the light. And so, not that I'm that <laughs> by any means, but I mean, we've we've come across those people, and so I think what you're doing here is great. As well, far no, as you're I'm you're exactly that. I mean, you're one of the inspirations for this podcast. So, oh, thank you. Don't man. be so humble. I appreciate that. Uh, as far as um, you know, what where I came from, uh, it's it's tricky to say because like where on the timeline do I point? Because you know, music is such a part of so many of our lives. But then, like, when did it? When did it really start to res- resonate? When did it really start to feel like you had to do it? Yeah. And I think that was pretty early for me. You know, like um, I was a skateboarder as a teenager. And when, when I first was like introduced to punk music, like 
the Descendants or Minor Threat or Operation Ivy. Like that felt like part of me. Like I felt like those, that angsty intensity was, was people speaking my language. And prior to that, I didn't have that. I, I mean, your friends don't typically be like, I'm saying rat screaming in your face. And you're like, oh, now we identify with each other. Nor at that age do you have the emotional capacity to relate to someone on that level. But that music did. And so that kind of kind of kept me in that sort of um, fringe of music, out of kind of out of the mainstream when hip hop came out. I like strongly identified with NWA and Cypress Hill and things that my parents were like appalled by and society was afraid of because it was so intense. And I was like, man, I liked, I liked it for those reasons. And then as, as, as were I, were you making music at that point? Were you, were you playing anything? No, or? no. I was really just like, I lived and breathed it. You know, I had, I had headphones with me all the time or, you know, I had a, I had a Walkman with a cassette and then I had a Walkman with a CD player and like, when we were on family gatherings and such, like I was listening to like intense West Coast gangster rap in Pennsylvania <laughs> and feeling like these guys are like me for some reason. Like I didn't I didn't sell crack or have hose, <laughs> but <laughs> but like for some reason there was something about the the underlying um passion and intensity that was like, ah, something about it that I connected to. And that that continued, you know, with my musical exploration and my brothers and friends had a band. And when I, when they started to do it, I'm like, Oh, I need to do it too. And that's, that's around when I got my first bass, you know, kind of, um, I was around 18 years old when I got my first instrument. And as soon what what kind of band was your brother's band? They were, uh, they were overly influenced by grunge. Okay. So they were, they were kind of hacking, Nirvana and Pearl Jam to an extreme, but they wrote their own music and I, I started writing lyrics for them. And um, I'd go to all their shows and we'd have like mosh pits to like these mellow jams <laughs> and things that were grossly out of context. But when they started doing it, um, I was heavily inspired. Like, oh, if they're going to do it, I'm going to do it. I chose a bass because a lot of my friends were guitarists and I just start writing on it immediately. Like the first thing I did on a bass once I was able to move my fingers enough to play a few notes was like make a riff and like that was like the start of a song like before i even learned any other songs i wrote a song and so that that resonated heavily with me and from that i mean from then i, I really have been writing non-stop for like 25 years just i don't know if a week has passed without writing something or multiple things in all that time it's it's interesting that you went straight to writing kind of riffy stuff on bass and, and weren't like, you know, I need to figure out how to get in the pocket and be the bass player. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. At I, what point did you switch to guitar? It was, um, kind of during the same time. Like I started bass and I, I really focused on that for a few years and I started a band. Like as soon as I had the ability to play a few notes sequentially without being too far out of time, I had a band already. And then I, I was going away to college right around that time. And kind of the main reason I went to college was to form like the funkiest band <laughs> possible. <laughs> I was like wanting to be the funky meters or, or so, like something out of Motown. Again, grossly a million miles away from what my little steel town was like, but yeah, I really was a, a, I overplayed to the extreme on the bass. <laughs> I don't, I didn't, I didn't identify with the pocket. I, I wrote songs and I played too many notes. <laughs> You're not alone as, as a bass player. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you. Um, so that band was, your first band was before college and then was that just short lived and then you started a band in college? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. The first band was just us, like, we, we were writing originals. You know, I came in the, to the band with originals, and I was kind of leading the band as a bassist. But we didn't really do much. And then when I went to college, a band came together pretty quick there as well. And it had a lot of momentum. We had, like, truly insane gigs where there was hundreds of people, like, 
people jumping onto the stage and near riots if we got cut off early. <laughs> it was wow. it was pretty intense for a minute. Yeah. Was were you the vocalist in the band? I was one of three. Okay. So that band was um had a lot of it was a five piece band with three songwriters and uh well four songwriters and three vocalists. So it was pretty diverse. Called the makeshifters. The makeshifters. So you you didn't know how good you had it. No. No. Sometimes sometimes it was like, wow, this is so much more than I even imagined could be. And then other times it was like, you didn't know that. Like after that, you realize, oh, it's not so easy to get people to come out right. or form a following. At that time, we had like all these characters in the band who had different circles. And so they all pulled from their circles and suddenly we had a full crowd. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily work that way in, in life later. Yeah. I mean, what do you, do you think that was just because, you know, everybody was young and they were all ready to go out and, you know, it was like always a party waiting to happen or. Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of that. I think I was in Morgantown, West Virginia and there was just a crazy music scene there at the time. Uh, things were blowing up. Like I'd walk down the street and sometimes I'd pass like two or three houses with rehearsals going on. And sometimes I'd just go into that house like, what's up, guys? And we just start jamming. <laughs> like, it was like, there was that much music spilling onto the streets or the people there are known as the porch people because every house has a porch. There'd be jams on the porch and like, you can really just breeze on in and have it. So the, I think the, the culture there was just steeped in improvisation and music ready to happen. And so that in a college town really made that happen. That's pretty amazing. So you, you jumped right in, you were kind of a dyed in the wool. You didn't, there wasn't a period where you were like, well, is this really, you know, right. what I should, what I should be doing? You were just like, nope. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it, it did never, it, I never really questioned it too much. I like that. Um, there's a Tom Petty quote and I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it, it's something when he's talking about songwriting, he said like, it, it's not really something you should look straight in the eye. It's like kind of a supernatural thing. And I think I had that sentiment without knowing it. Like I wasn't so eloquent to put together that beautiful little piece of words. But I think that's something I did. I, I fell into it and I just, the momentum and the the, uh, the sort of, I keep searching for a word here, but the sort of emotional, inspirational component of it just kept me wanting to keep moving forward. Yeah. Was, was there ever the typical kind of superficial, you know, motivation when for a young, young guy or young woman, like just to get attention or it was all just music and you didn't care about anything else? Uh, I would like, I would like to say it was just music and I didn't care about anything else, but I don't think that's really the case for anybody entirely. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I never had aspirations of being like famous in in the typical sense of like, Man, I would love to be um I would love to be adored or, or anything along those lines. But I you know, I think every musician thinks about like playing the biggest and best stages, just looking out at a crowd that's just raging, you know? So I had that. Yeah. That was actually my next question was like what was your goal at that time? Were you like, I want to be a professional musician, I want to do this for a full time gig? No, not not really. I think I just loved it. I, I love um, I love writing. I love that moment of discovery. I love going into a room and coming out of that room with something that you didn't have before. It didn't even exist. It was like never in the world. And so that, that was the main thing. I, um, there's another quote I like is by Dr. Dre. And he said, like, I'd be doing this shit even if I worked at Red Lobster. <laughs> and I, and I just learned that quote in like the last couple of years. But when I look back at me as a, as a writer or a musician, like I feel the same way, you know, like it's not really, I don't really, I like the recognition. I like when it has a positive effect on someone. Or that's really the ultimate goal. But I'd pro even if I never got that, I think I'd still be writing. Yeah. Yeah. 
were so so what was the next did the band end when you left college and then were you playing guitar in that band or were you playing bass in that college band i was a bassist in that band i was writing from the guitar and um writing from the guitar or the bass and bringing it to the band and we'd arrange together and write together but yeah it ended as the um, as like some of us graduated at different times so one guy left and we got a replacement it was actually a, quite a famous singer songwriter named chris casper out of philadelphia and that was pretty pretty cool but then as people people all kept leaving and so the band just kind of couldn't sustain nobody lived in town anymore yeah as it happens so what was next like what was the next stop on the on the journey was it another band yeah it didn't take long um i came to california and i had a whole new set of songs you know like there were just wanting to live, you know, that, that's how I think of them a lot of the time is like, I don't know, sometimes I don't know what it's for or if it has any true value for anybody but me, but there's something internally that says like this wants to live. And so I had a group of songs together. I got two of my old bandmates to fly to learn. I sent them tracks in on the East coast they flew out to California. We tracked them. I had my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, sing on there. Pulled in some buddies from local, and we we did a full album within the first few months of me moving to California. And after that, I formed a band with some uh, coworkers that was like this pop punk sort of thing that just felt like it also had to happen because we were in Southern California. So when you say that the you know, you know that a song, it needs to live. How do you determine what, you know, what form that takes? Because it could be just you on a, on a stage with a guitar, or it could be you playing everything and recording everything yourself, but you brought in other musicians that you had known or worked with and made it happen that way. Like what, tell me about that decision process or was it even? Yeah, there was, there was a decent amount of thought into it. Cause I, I did a lot of, um, the arranging prior to them coming, but then they really put their own spin on it, wrote their own parts as well. But at that time, I didn't really, I wasn't too familiar or maybe even confident enough to be a solo artist and do like a performance of something, a stripped down vocal acoustic only type of mix. I had really known this sort of pretty high energy, um, full band sound and so at that point i thought like that's how i was envisioning things you know like if i wrote something on the guitar i was always imagining what the drums were doing or what a backup vocal may do and so then that was where i was coming from but since that time i think my thought process has changed extremely where i think songs can live in different forms where if it is I think a song could live one time. And if that one time had meaning or felt powerful or resonated with someone, that could be enough. Like that was that song's life. And sometimes that same thing happens. You're like, you want to live again, don't you? <laughs> that was not enough for you. And that, those are the songs that kind of probably, at least in my questionable opinion have more reason to continue so i think how they live is um they can live in many forms you know do you feel like they tell you like they tell you what needs like whether or not they're done or they need another life in another arrangement or another <laughs> yeah i mean I, I would like to keep it right where you have it because it's so magical <laughs> you know like like the song is literally has um a soul yeah. and is telling me what to do. And if I don't listen, I'm going to burn eternally. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I, and it, there, there is a little bit of that. Like sometimes like time will pass. Time is obviously a huge teacher in this sense where when I look back at the song, I'm like, Oh, Oh, you're not done. You're, you're still good. Yeah. And you've only, you've only been heard by three people on one occasion. Like, let's try to bring you into the light in some other form or multiple forms. So yeah, I think they are speaking to you. And I like, I love that personification because 
that that is what happens in a in a the most beautiful sense. Well, and it feels like sometimes they speak to you through your audience where you might have, you know, you might have done a full band arrangement on a song and thought it was amazing and thought it would connect with all these people and it just maybe never connected the way that you wanted it to. But then you sit down at a party and play it acoustic or something and people are, you know, telling you they want to hear it over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That That's so sometimes it's the song and sometimes it's the people that the song affected. I know we had a, had that situation on the most recent album we did with spiritual motels with Amy day and I, and we were talking about one of the songs that the arrangement kept changing in the studio. And it, it ended up being very far away from how we performed it. And we're like, where we weren't sure if we did the right thing. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, was that a mistake? And I said, you know what? I, I have a feeling that we both feel that way. It's still going to be someone's favorite song on the album. And it was that her friend like said, ah, that song on fault lines, that, that was the one I loved the most. I was like, ah, I knew it. Like, so you never, you never can tell like how much value it truly has because our capacity to interpret art is so subjective. It's funny because you hear about, even artists who have had huge success or their producers and they say the same thing. So we didn't, we didn't expect that song to do anything and it becomes a huge hit. Right. Um, or sometimes that, you know, that's what the producer brings. I feel like is that audience's ear to know that's the one. You know? Right. Right. Cause sometimes for, for whatever reason, it seems like we musicians don't necessarily have that. We're, yeah. we're too close. You know? Yeah. That's exactly right. Too, too close to see what it really is. And, I'm sure you've heard many of the stories about famous artists passing on songs that later became like number one hits for infinite amount of time. So, yeah. So, so what happened with that, that band? So the, the band after college. Yeah. So you, the, you left college, that college band kind of disbanded. Yeah. Yeah. And then you formed a band with some of your workmates. Right. That, that kind of goes to the classic, creative differences because there was two primary songwriters in that band, myself and the guitarist. And um, we were both writing songs and then handing them over to the vocalist. So in that particular case, we were both singers and songwriters, but we kind of took the backup singer role. Um, and we jumped in for some lead on occasionally, but we had like a lead singer. Like he was not an instrumentalist. He just sang. And we, he, he was, he was enthusiastic and intense and we enjoyed him for that, those reasons. And I still collaborate with him a little bit, but, um, he was a front man. Yeah, he was a front man. And, uh, that was, that was hard on the band though. You know, um, I, that's like the first time I'd ever really given my songs away, even though I was a part of it. And I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, and that was a little bit hard on me, but I, I started to become comfortable with it. It was a lot harder on the guitarist at that time. Like he wasn't prepared to like give away his baby, as as one might say. Yeah. And so that band just kind of dissipated after uh, a few years. It, it lasted. We had a lot of good gigs and a lot of intense moments, but it couldn't sustain itself due to those creative differences. So did you have? Did you ever have? Uh, did you have a break after that, or was it? You know, pretty much you've always been in a band or some form of... Because I've seen you in duos. I've seen you in bands that are big arrangements. Um, yeah, the, the, the break... I've had some breaks. I don't think I've ever exceeded a year without having a legitimate project in motion. And that year was not a good year. <laughs> For anyone around you, probably. <laughs> right. Uh, who knows where I was uh, psychologically at the time, but I could venture to say it probably wasn't healthy. Um, but yeah, I've always, I've always kind of tried to keep that in motion because it, for the songs to live, I've always found that collaboration and a way to put them into the world. That's not just me is critical. Like, I don't think they really realize themselves until they're bouncing off someone else or I'm collaborating with someone else. Do you feel comfortable kind of sharing that? You know, some musicians or songwriters are pretty controlling about what they want because we, you know, we hear it a certain way in our heads and we want it to come out that way. And the whole mission is to try try and make it come out that way. 
Um, but you seem pretty open about sharing with your collaborators. Yeah. I mean, there, there's times that that is the case and there's times that I'm horrible. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not someone that is probably enjoyable to work with because of that intensity or that wanting to stick to the vision type of emotion. So I think it's critical to, to really uh, establish that on the front end of a collaboration. You know, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I think I like to be the boss, but I also understand that I have limitations. And so I try to surround myself with people who specifically have skill sets that I feel weak in. And therefore, um, they can bring things to the table that I usually either can't do physically, like a vocal type of thing, or that I wouldn't think of due to my lack of uh, my, my less than powerful brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, that's a certainly characteristic of a good leader is to try and surround yourself with people who bring strengths that you might not have. And I mean, that's really kind of what you are as, as the driving force in a band is, is a leader of people. So what about after, what about bands after that? Um, how many bands have you been in until you are now, you know, where you are in, in your current collaboration? Yeah, I tried to break that down before this, before this interview, because I'm not, it's not something that I can easily access as far as like, what have you done for the past 20 years? <laughs> you know, that's not, uh. An archive that just pulls up with great ease. I see. I, so after I moved to California, I had at least so probably somewhere between seven and ten. Wow. And sometimes it was like the same name. So there was a band, the Otis Turbine, that probably had four to five different forms. I had the Peripherals, which had two to three different forms. Um, without a motorcycle was a prog rock sort of i don't even know where it came from monster <laughs> that went for a while and then i had spiritual motels which is my current project and that's a duo between myself and amy day what were the styles of those i i know the peripherals as in i guess you'd call it americana would be a fair yeah americana indie folk kind of in that realm and i think the spiritual motels are in that ballpark as well yeah, yeah, we we're we're there. We got um uh San Diego Music Award and they put us in the category of pop. I saw that. Which I was mildly I was mildly <laughs> offended by. But then I'm like, well, there there's good pop music in the world. I think that word has taken on a negative connotation in the hearts of many musicians, but if you're getting an award, <laughs> what can you do? You complain about it? I don't want your award. Well, yeah, I mean, I always think if, you know, first of all, that's kind of a, that's a pretty big miss as far as, <laughs> as far as assessing the genre of an act. Um, yeah, right. But, but I always think, well, that if it's, if it's sort of an award that you're up for against other acts, then it puts you at a disadvantage against artists who are actually pop artists. Right, right. And the artist that won that is undoubtedly a pop artist. I think, though, it's tricky if you're not um, extremely steeped in one particular style and you're more of a hybrid, it is hard to classify. You know, we, we do things that are folky and, and acoustic, and then, but we also do some things that are poppy, and then we have elements of spoken word, or we are using mandolins, so it becomes Americana, and like, it, there's a blend between what it is, so... I can't get mad at anyone about what they decide to call it, really. Yeah, I mean, at least they're recognizing you and, and noticing. Yeah, yeah. So, it sounds like you kind of went from funk in college to pop punk to Americana. Was there any other sort of stylistic island in between? Yeah, yeah, there was kind of a break in between. Again, it was sort of a, a hybrid of genres. Sometimes it can get kind of funky. The spoken word element is always a part of my music, you know, where mm -hmm. um, I started out as a poet. And, and sometimes I just don't feel like I can say what I want to say within a melody. Like the amount of words I want there to be within a, a measure is 
it's not realistic to put it in, into something beautiful or melodic. So that spoken word element has kind of been thematic through it all, but it tends to be a a smaller component, you know, probably an eighth or less of everything that I've done, but still important to me. But some of those other projects went into sometimes a little more rocking, you know, where the Without a Motorcycle project is the first time where I considered breaking my own instrument on stage. <laughs> did you? I did not act upon that, but my bandmate would. Oh. <laughs> and did, no, I didn't. Watching him play, like, he would be bleeding, like, not intentionally, not like a Sid Vicious sort of situation, but he would just be so intense. And this is my friend Peter Soros. He'd be so intense that he would just play until he bled. He'd be on top of his amp. He'd be flying through the air, or playing, bouncing his guitar off a pool table and, and just seeing him in action. I was like, yeah, I want to break things too. But then I'm like, this is too expensive of an instrument. So I couldn't bring myself to do it. So I've definitely taken some detours from the more purist songwriter perspective. But I think underneath all that is like, what I care about most is the song. A good song can be done as a punk song, a funk song, or a, a solo acoustic arrangement. Or a country song, as they always end up. At some or point. a country song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They start that way. A lot of them do start country, and then sometimes they turn into unidentifiable creatures. That's funny. It seems like now more than ever, it's, it's I don't want to say expected, but it's, it's a lot more acceptable to hear a song remade in every genre you can think of than it used to be. Yeah. It feels like those, those lines are a lot thinner than they used to be. I agree that. I guess, is, is it not the songwriter's goal to be remixed in as many ways as possible? I mean, they get paid every time it plays, so <laughs> they're probably just happy it's, <laughs> right. it's still being played. So if you were to, you know, kind of call yourself something, what would that be? Is it songwriter? Is it guitarist, poet, musician, engineer? Could be, because you wear so many hats, you know, doing what you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh Man, labeling yourself is, I think there's an importance to it, but there's also um, a danger in it, you know, as far as um, there's like a famous, I don't know if it's not famous really, because it's not well known, but there's a Zen saying, to define is to kill. And I think about that sometimes because I am very guilty of overly or attempting to overly define every aspect of my life and life in general. But I think when it comes to defining myself, I, I, I kind of just try to keep it simple. Instead of singer-songwriter, I like songwriter-singer and, and, and as, as far as the sequence goes because of my poor ability to sing at times. But um, in, the, in those other realms, uh, I don't really have the confidence to, to label myself with those too much maybe poet i tie poet on there sometimes because i've allowed myself to say well you do poetry that means you're a poet and so i can accept that but when i think of like a poet in the historical sense those were like the most brilliant humans and so i don't think of myself that way i think of myself in the way of i'm a human who does poetry therefore a poet <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you do all those things. And, you know, it could be you're writing the song, you're singing the song, you're recording, so you're doing, you know, you're an engineer, you're mixing, sometimes mastering, you're a marketer, you know, you have to be a marketer too now. Um, where do you start when you're songwriting? Do you start usually with the music? Do you start with lyrics? Do you start with melody? Or is it always different? Yeah, it's always different. Um are not always different. There's sort of a handful of ways that are like my go-tos or the, the places that I tend to most likely find the inspiration or the spark. Um, there's been many times where it is like I just play the guitar until, until I find something that resonates. But I'm, I'm always writing lyrics or lines or even words like, oh, I never used the word atrocity before. And so I have this ongoing Google Doc that I keep words and lines in and I'll just write down like atrocity. And then when I'm 
if I find something on guitar that starts to move me, but I don't have words or it doesn't come with words as well as they sometimes do, then I go to my, my list and I just start saying like, what connects with this? Um, but th they come from different places. Sometimes it's one of those two methods, but other times it's just like a feeling like, I think I have a song, like I've experienced enough or went through a certain roller coaster of life, emotion, etc. that now somewhere inside of me, I think I have a song. Like if I sat down, I think there's a song there. Or sometimes there's situations where it's just like a simple idea. Like I, I think an apoc, I don't know if anyone's ever written an apocalyptic love song. So I'm going to write one of those. So it's just like con conceptual. I have the concept and eventually I'm going to get to that. So different, different forms on different days and, and based on, you know, I'll blame it on um, astrology. <laughs> Although I don't buy into that at all. Why not? Why not say that that's the cause of where these songs come from? Do you, do you find that one method produces better songs or like songs that you've liked the best have always, you know, started from lyrics or melody or it's, they've all had their hits and misses? Yeah, it's been more of a hit or miss with that. Um, one thing that I would maybe go out on a limb and say is a little stronger is when, when the song, when the first line of the song is like a great line. Like if you have that first line, I think sometimes that that births, if you can stay true to that and, and sort of continuously reflect on the power of that particular line, I think that can be a very concise and powerful representation of an idea. But it's not always the case. You know, I think I have I've seen I've written I've written songs that I kind of go to that cliche that many songwriters talk about is like I don't know where that came from and that's maybe my best song one of my best songs yeah or I've written songs that I thought were my best songs like I know exactly where that came from that's about my brother <laughs> so it, it could be a different different value on a different day right right I totally agree on the on the first line I mean it could be it could be the first line or it could be a word or you know there's some anchor in the song that you can come back to if it's not, you know, you're trying things out and it's not working the way you want it to, as long as you have that anchor that you, you just feel like that is a winner, that is like super strong and I love it. Yeah. And it, it gives me a feeling, you know, it's a, it's a great start. It's a great, great to build off of. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key there though, in where I've lost it sometimes is I've had that beautiful anchor and not been able to return to it properly or stay with it you know, like where you lose it. Um, but I think I'm with you too. Like if that anchor is there and you're able to be true to it within the way that you approach building around it, that that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like um, a feeling of authenticity. If you're like, when you have that anchor and if you feel like what you've built around it is at home around it and it feels real and authentic and you know you're on the right track, but if if it starts to feel like you're you're trying to fit the the meter, or you're trying to fit the structure, and you're making concessions because of that, and it doesn't feel as real, that's where I've I'm always you know stressed out about going off course there. Yeah, yeah, and that that's that's where I was sort of speaking to a little bit earlier. Is sometimes I'll I'll write a song from a poem that I wrote, and the poem has its own meter, of course, and its own rhyme scheme of some form that can be much looser than a song because of the constraints of melody, you know, where in a, a line, you could have a 20-word line in a poem, but a 20-word melody is a damn long melody. So <laughs> when it comes to something like that, um, I, that's where I would wear why I've always felt the need to stick with that spoken word to some, for some reason exists. Yeah. Because yeah. So it's not being true. I lose my authenticity. Like you said. Well, and it, I mean, it also, you know, seems to harken back to the first, first times when you were getting into music, you know, when you were listening to rap and you were feeling the energy there and identifying with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're kind of going somewhere else. That's also, in the supernatural realm 
with that concept because of the the energy of it, which is so much less intellectual and so much more visceral and that component too, where things about like saying, is this authentic kind of gets thrown out the window because it's like, does this vibe right, right. <laughs> and whatever vibe that should be or feels right. So I have a question because I see how much work and music amazing music that you're producing all the time. And I'm like, how is this guy so prolific given, you know, a regular job? You're a school psychologist. You've got a beautiful family. How do you produce so much music? Do you schedule time? Do you like, how do you make that happen in the confines of all that stuff going on? <laughs> I like, uh, when you said schedule time, I, I just had to, I had to laugh about that part. <laughs> I mean, I try to, I do. I, I, and my wife is amazing when I'm like, Hey, I need this day or a few hours today. Take the kids somewhere. Like I, I need this to do this. So that does happen. There, there is some scheduling, but why I laugh is because most of the time I'm just jamming it in there. Like the kids are getting ready. Grab your guitar. Uh, the kids went to bed. Grab your guitar. The kids didn't wake up yet. Grab your guitar. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> your meeting got canceled. Grab your guitar. So like, I, I really, um, it, it's not, it's not so much that I'm forcing it because again, I just feel this drive. Like, like this is something I have to do. Like I, I want to do it, but I also feel this obligation, this, um, this drive to, 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 to dig deeper into the meaning of things. And, and that's the way that's the, road that i've chosen is music so i jam it in there when i can the the challenge there is getting like you know you know you hear people talking about getting into the zone and there's a creative space that you get into when you're you know writing music or you you know mixing or doing doing anything associated with this how do you kind of get into that zone quickly when you're squeezing it in here and there yeah that's a good question and i think i just kind of carry it with me you know i don't there's, there's times where I'll have some beautiful peace where I'm uninterrupted and I can get into the zone and, and find things and complete them to a sense, you know, at least complete the drafts of them. But I think a lot of the time it, it's a mentality I, I try to walk around with. And so if I am walking the dog with the kids I, and, and something hits me in an inspirational way, like a, a grumpy looking human is whistling. <laughs> like, huh? Like that? What? And I'm trying to make sense of it. I guess I just try to keep myself open to like, keep trying to make sense of things and recognize beauty in things. And so even when I'm doing mundane or um, tasks where I'm less than focused and definitely not in the zone, I'm still trying to gather that type of information to use at a later time. Or, I mean, just to like feel better about being alive. <laughs> but if it's not just to feel better, like if it's good enough, if it's more than just feel better and it allows me to be inspired, then I'm going to write it down. I got my phone, I got my list, I'm putting it there and I'm going to get to you because you have something. Right. I've I've heard that from a lot of great writers that are always, I mean, it seems like two components. One is to have that just under the surface, that creative piece and accessible where you start, you know, you see something and you start the, the feeling or you start the idea. And then also just having something around all the time. Like I need to write that down because I'm going to develop that idea later. Yeah. That's, that's my, when so, if anyone ever asks me for advice, that's my only or my strongest piece is like have a way to document your ideas instantly. And for that reason, I'm a little bit against purists who are like, it's got to be pencil on paper, man. That's the way you do it. That's that's right. where the true vibe is. And if you do it that way and you're and it works for you, that's awesome. But you don't always have a pencil and you don't always have paper. And a lot of times when I used to do it that way, I would lose that paper because it was a gum wrapper. <laughs> and it was, it was like, and you're like, oh man, my best idea is got washed. And so I think it's critical to have a place that's dependable 
And that's why I like like a Google Drive or something like that, because even if my phone dies, it's going to be there on the cloud and I'm going to not lose some of my best ideas. Yeah. I mean, technology is, is not necessarily the enemy of creativity. It's like, sure, you get a different feeling when you write things down with a pencil or a pen. But, you know, like you said, there are some advantages to yeah, technology. Yeah. yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever works for you, I'm not saying stop that, but have a backup plan for when that doesn't exist. Or, like I said, you wash the best lyric you ever wrote. Right. And the other piece I would add to that advice is write enough down so that you understand what you were thinking at the time. Yeah. So many, so many times you're like, you wrote down two words and you have no idea what the feeling was or the idea was that you had. Yeah. I've started to do that. That's a, that's a new thing for me in the last, I don't know, year, maybe two years because I'm writing so often. And when the song finally comes to the world, someone like wants to know about it. I kind of don't remember where it came from, Yeah, you know, because sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So I started in my lyric sheets on the bottom. I wrote, I write inspiration and I say where it was born from, what I was thinking at the time, why that was meaningful to me. And just if, if not only for myself in the, chance occurrence that someone is like, Hey, what the F is that song about? <laughs> I want to be able to give them something and not be this weird Zen maniac. <laughs> There's nothing wrong be- with being a weird Zen maniac. <laughs> yeah, it has, it has its place. Yes. Um, how much time would you say you spend in the songwriting zone in the, you know, recording, mixing, mastering, and then in, in kind of the, getting people to hear that, like how much time do you spend in, on promoting just to get people to listen to what you've done? Yeah. The bulk of it is in the songwriting realm. And that's kind of my favorite part. And as I know you do this as well, and, and most people who are recording themselves in the process of songwriting, you kind of mix as you go. You know, you, you kind of start to ex- explore what works sonically and where things should sit. So those kind of go together sometimes, but the bulk of it for me is in the the songwriting part. And sometimes there's a lot of variability. Like I wrote a song in the last couple of days called Bandages that I, I literally wrote, I had the skeleton there in like two hours. Everything was there. Like I had, chords, I had some backup vocals, I had instrumental melody lines, lyrics were pretty much solidified. I mean, I've modified them a little bit since then in like a two-hour time. And then there's times that I'll spend like months trying to take that giant ice block and sculpt it into something that's of enough value to share. And this one I wrote in two hours in the last three days, and I'd, I'd pretty much put it out there today. As it is, it's not beautifully mixed or anything, but there's something in it that is just kind of, you know what, this this has enough heart, even if it's a lie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it's worth throwing out there and just bouncing it off the world and see what happens. But going back to your question, it's different for different things. You know, I think um, once that we start to, when I say we, I'm thinking like the band or myself or Amy, when we start to get into making videos and stuff that can start building, burning a lot more time. Cause it's a whole nother creative endeavor. And mm-hmm. it's something that's kind of new to us both. I've kind of enjoyed the video editing thing a lot, but it's also, it can eat, it can eat a lot of life. You know, like I've, I've definitely spent 50 hours editing a video. And so most of my songs don't take 50 hours to write. So <laughs> that's, that's one way to view this. Have you found that certain types of, I mean, are videos getting you in touch with more people than other types of promotion, like social media or things like that? Yeah, I think there's more engagement that way. I, it's The world is kind of sad in the way that if you just post a song with a picture that it's unlikely to hold many people's interests. I think that 
our attention spans are so flooded with these short serotonin boosting clips that to, to say like, hey, while you're scrolling through Facebook at however many miles per hour your typical user scrolls, stop on this song for three minutes. It, it seems a little unrealistic. And I think it's sad as well because that three minutes could take you exactly where you need to go or to somewhere you didn't expect to go. Whereas you continue to scroll, you are consuming who knows what. So it's a, it's a dangerous and sad situation that we're in. But I do think, going back to your question, having some type of visual component is helpful for engagement. Isn't that crazy? I mean, people used to listen to whole albums and just experience the whole trip and then it was songs and now it's like six or seven seconds of video and, right. and you're already bored. <laughs> Seriously, I, I still listen to whole albums sometimes, but even I um, have reduced that and I'll, I'll kind of not give things a chance I once would. Like I, even 10 years ago, I'd get really excited about one of my favorite artists coming out the whole album. And I'd listen to that whole album a number of times from in, in the sequence that they wanted, which is another factor too with things <laughs> right? like Spotify yeah. is like, you don't even get the vision that the artist thought about for 10 days of their life on how, what order to put the songs in <laughs> because no one listens to them in that order. Yeah. But I, I used to do that a lot and I do it less and I'm guessing non-songwriting, non-musician people are doing it even less. So it's just something to be mindful of as a writer is like, how do people consume this stuff? And why do I have to use such a horrible word like consume? <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you a couple of rapid fire questions and then close out with some, right. some heavier questions. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, what is your favorite piece of gear right now? Uh, my loop pedal is my favorite piece of gear. It's definitely an amazing writing assistant. He's a jam man too. And, and when I don't have a song in me or, or it doesn't feel like I have a song in me necessarily, I don't have that sort of welling up of like, ah, I have something that I need to express or create or find. Um, a loop pedal is a great way to still do that because almost every time I sit down on it, I, I, and I start trying to create with that and layering does something come out? Not always something I use, but something that resonates with me. And so I still get that sort of therapeutic cathartic effect through it, even if I'm not creating something that anyone's ever going to hear. Nice. If you could sit in with any musician or band from any era, who would that be? Shit. <laughs> I was pretty prepared up until that. <laughs> I should be prepared for that, though. That's a, that's a pretty powerful, meaningful question. Oh, there, there are a lot of ways you can go with it. I mean, for me, I mean, there's a ton, but I would have killed to have sat in on a Lennon-McCartney writing session when they were just throwing around ideas and oh, yeah. changing chords and experimenting with lyrics. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's a great one, man. I think anytime I see their informal studio footage, and obviously they pick the best stuff to show the world, but they're like, they're having, they're having such a good time finding things, you know? Right. And they were not, you know, necessarily the most musically schooled in a, in a formal way, but they knew, you know, they had a handle on chord substitutions and which chords worked with, you know, this type of melody and yeah. just, and they were playing with those things, you know, at a high level when they were 15 and 16. So I would always, I always thought it'd be great to witness that. Yeah. I, my, my head is going to, I mean, it's jumped through a, a number of musicians, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to go with the whole experience and I, would, I might go to early, early grateful dead and sitting in with them in those hate Ashbury days where they were playing at the Fillmore West and it, and by the sounds of it and all accounts, it was truly a chaos experiment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what was happening, what they were allowed to do 
and the freedom they had to to just jam and just find things with, with such virtuosic musicians like Jerry Garcia and the two drummers, like it was unidentifiable and unexplainable. And at that time, with all that energy that existed then, I think that would be a pretty, even if I was just a tambourine player, I'd be like, wow, <laughs> that was something. That would be amazing. Yeah. There's certain, there's certain places in certain times in history where it seems like music was just, I don't know, cosmically exploding for some, <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason. Right. Right. I would have liked like to have been in a cosmic explosion. <laughs> like LA in the seventies with, you know, the Eagles and uh, Jackson Brown and, you know, all those Linda Ronstadt, just in, just crazy. Yeah. Um, so why do you think since this podcast is kind of about the, the lesser known people that I consider to be musical greats, why do you think some people make it and some people don't as far as wider exposure? That that's a good question. I, I think um, luck is a factor, and there's. I'm going to attempt to quote Oprah. I don't remember exactly how she says it, but it's a pretty powerful quote that I think relates. And it's something like when when you're when skill or passion and opportunity meet, that's where success lies, or something like that. So. You know, thinking about all the greats that exist that aren't in the light, we could say that they just haven't encountered opportunity yet, and maybe they never will, which is a grim thought, but that, that could be the case. But an opportunity, luck, the cosmos, whatever, however you want to identify that, the, the wish of the universe or some higher power aligned. Take it as you will. I, I don't take it any of those ways, but <laughs> I think uh, I think that that's where it comes to. Like you have to have the ability, the passion, the the ability to tap into some kind of collective consciousness, and then you have to get lucky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there certainly there are a lot of really talented people. You know, talent is not necessarily there's not necessarily necessarily a shortage of talent um and there are those special ones that you see and you're just like oh well yeah that person is that person is going to make it right um and a lot of times they do sometimes they don't but there's those all those other factors you know opportunity timing uh, you know luck um so lastly what the the spiritual motels are making amazing music. What what are you trying to achieve with your music overall? What's your when would you feel like? Yeah, I really I really did what I set out to do with my music. Well, yeah, that seems like a two parter because the first part has an easier answer, whereas what I want to do is I want my songs to affect people the way that songs affect me. You know, like that just spiritual, transcendent connection that can happen when when the song speaks to you or it, it feels like you or it heals you or it, it takes you somewhere you've never been before. Like those beautiful components are something that I would love for my music to ever do to anybody. The second part, I think, is a lot more difficult to answer is like, when will I know? <laughs> and I, I don't know, even if the greatest of the greats have come to that moment prior to their death, <laughs> where they were like, oh yeah, that was it. We're there. We're done. <laughs> we made it. I, I think everyone's kind of keeps striving and keeps going. So I, I don't know if I'll ever know. I, I just want to try to appreciate those small moments that occur within that attempt, be it someone's foot tapping or someone saying like, wow, that was beautiful or, or that moved me or I connected to that because whatever. That, that's really what I'm going for. Yeah. That, that thought alone and that, I mean, that's beautiful in itself. Well, I want to thank you. I know you've had uh, some, some family 
emergencies happening during our time. Yeah, I want to thank you for <laughs> for hanging in. I'm I'm glad to hear that your your kids are okay and everyone made it out okay. Uh, thanks for taking the time and sharing your thoughts. I'd like to do this again sometime. I have tons and tons of questions, and I love to to talk them over with you. Thanks, man. This was awesome. Throwing down those poison thoughts like shots with my old friends And waiting for the serotonin to level me out again If the songs are in my darkness, then in darkness I will dwell Like my inspiration in a prison cell my functioning like poetry is in and out of rhyme. So I'll see you again.